0: Thunderbolt Strength.
1: Welcome to the Thunderbolt Strength podcast, where we hear about the lives of strong people. This is Bryant Hankins, and I have my co-host Molly. Hi, Bryant. And Kevin. Hi, Bryant. Today, we have Dr. Kaveh Adel, who immigrated from Iran at age 16, became a dentist, author, and cartoonist. Thanks for
2: joining us. it's my pleasure
1: so i thought we would start with hearing a little bit about your background and how you feel like it shaped you uh growing up your formative years in iran and then coming to the u.s like how did that impact your life and what was it like
2: uh well i i was in iran uh when i was born in iran of course uh in 73 that'll age me Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um and then um I was there during the 1979 revolution, 78-79 revolution. So I was I was a young kid. I was in, in there during the, uh, the demonstrations in the street and how...
1: And can you give us just a little bit of background of what the Iranian revolution was at that time? I know, like, some of us probably as kids have images of the Ayatollah Khomeini and that stuff and something with Reagan, but it's Maybe a little fuzzy, so just to set the, the political stage a little bit, or the sure. background.
2: I'll take you back to 1953 in a very quick way, and then and then we'll okay. come uh, full circle to 1979. 1953, there was a coup d'etat against the uh, democratically elected Iranian prime minister named Mossadegh, uh, and that um, coup d'etat was uh, paid for by CIA, and so uh, it was called Oper- Operation Ajax. Okay. Um, which the documents have been released and the uh, United States finally admitted that they, that they actually paid people to, to, to cause that. So that created, uh, and so they brought uh, the, the, uh, the Shah, uh, which was the monarch, into power as a result of that. Uh, so people um, hold that sort of as in the background and from a historical perspective in Iran. Over the years, the monarch uh, didn't do very well. He did very well for the country for the for the time being that he was there, but it, during the bottom or the end end years of his uh, reign, there was a lot of corruption and people uh, were ha- were unhappy, very unhappy. So coming full circle in 1979, people were finally com- getting very angry about what was happening. Uh, and the, you know there was a uh, wage gap and people uh, were just very unhappy with the economics uh, things that were going on and morality issues that were happening in there so that's where Khomeini came in and he started using morality as a, as a pawn to, uh, to really rile people up so there was like this vacuum and he was able to kind of come in on people were unhappy and that's it and he started to really go for the, the, the common denominator which was Islamic um, you know faith and everything else because Iran mostly is Shiite, 98% Shiite Muslim. And so um, what happened was uh, uh, he capitalized on that, and people really got riled up, and um, they basically overthrew the Shah. And of course, he wasn't the only one who was trying to create change. There were a lot of people who wanted democratic change. They wanted to overthrow the uh, monarchy and just have a democratic elections. So there was a lot of different factions that were trying to work during that revolution. Uh, make a long story short. I was there. I was there, and my mom was involved in the uh, in, in demonstrations. She was more on the uh, um, socialist slash uh, um, groups uh, who wanted to bring uh, more social changes and and, and income income uh, qu- equality and and social equality. Um, and, and then we, she worked on women's rights as well. Yeah. And then, what? It, how did that impact you as
1: a kid? So,
2: what do you remember about it being
1: there on the ground?
2: It, it's, you know, it, it changes you because you see the violence um, and you really realize the uh, the rage that is in people. Um, and it, it makes you realize that, you know, you have to be genuine. You have to really dig deep inside you and find the, the best thing that you can find because people can be riled up in a very quick way in the lowest common denominator, which is anger and rage. Sure. Um and and they can do some uh, unforgivable things to other people. And so it it was really I was there in the, in the streets, and you could see what was happening to people in the streets, you know, people getting chopped down and you know killed, gunned down, all that stuff. Build buildings on fire, tires on fire, things that you see, you know, usually on the streets, on, on TV or yeah. something
1: that doesn't seem real, like.
2: Exactly. We, we we can't connect to it in America because we're, you know, we're blessed for having the, uh, uh, you know, the life that is that we have here. Um, but it's it's really, it, it impacts you as a child. Um, it makes so you was it
1: completely destabilized? Like, were you still going to school and trying to act like things were normal? Or was it literally like oh, school, was, nothing was happening sort uh, of thing?
2: It was mayhem. It yeah. was mayhem. Uh, and during that time, my father said, you know, told my mom, said, you guys need to get out of the country. So we left the country for about three months. So I had a hi- kind of a hiatus mm-hmm. um, right around before my birthday. We left Iran. We went to Italy, and uh, my mom said, "Okay, I'm going to start a new life here." And. Uh, her revolutionary things kicked in. She said, "No way, I'm going back." <laughs> so we went there for three months, and then we came back right on the night when martial law was was installed. Oh, so we wow. landed. We were flying over Tehran from. We were flying. We went to Paris, and then we flew back to Tehran. When I was flying, you could see fire. And we land, and then we take a taxi, and a taxi is driving past the the main university in Tehran called Tehran University. And the image that really kind of you know burns in my eyes is, or burn my retina if you will, and is etched <laughs> into my mind is the, uh, the um, image of a, of a soldier holding with a gas mask. Oh wow! And behind him, this university is on fire. So that uh, how how old were you then? Uh, about five and a half, six. Okay. So it, it impacts you, and I'm I'm a visual person, so it really stuck in my mind when when that happened. So um, so anyway, we went, came back in, and that that's when sort of everything started. And I started first grade as the first generation under the Islamic Revolution. Wow! So schools were segregated; boys were in a different school than the girls, whereas before the revolution, everything was mixed, um, and it was pretty strict. Oh, so it was like
1: the world kind of changed completely. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
2: It started to kind of feel like, you know, and I just reread 1984 by George Orwell, mm-hmm. and uh, it, it reminded me of, of that. Um, you know, now that I look back on it, I'm like, wow, this is exactly how it was. We were in uniforms, our hairs were, you know, shaved, and, and everybody was the same, you know? Wow. And sameness was, was the key, and, you know, corporal punishment was installed. I mean, you you defrayed a little bit from what you were s- supposed to do in school, you were punished.
1: So yeah. I guess the one dot that's not connected for me is you guys felt, your, your parents felt like you had to leave. Yeah. So you left for a bit. And then w- you, what was it that brought brought you back? She, you said your mom My felt mom. like she wanted to be plugged into what was going on there? Yeah,
2: yeah, because it was still a little unstable when Khomeini came back. I mean, Shah left uh, right, right around the first beginning of uh, 1979. And Khomeini came back uh-huh. like a couple of days or a couple of weeks after him, and everybody was happy. It's like, oh yeah! And he went and gave a huge speech that he's going to make changes, and everyone is going to be uh, taken care of economically. Oh god! So the
1: idea was that there's stability's coming back. Yeah. So we've we've weathered the storm. Now we can come back, and life will be back to normal, or That's some right. some sort of normal.
2: Yeah. And he was and he was kind of giving the the vibe that he was going to help democratic things to to come about, but he obviously quickly changed, and then there was uh, a lot of issues with them just gunning down people who were democratic, uh, wanted to bring democratic changes, there were assassinations and things like that happening, and my mom came back with the hope that she would, her group would be sort of, would have a voice in the parliament and be able to do all those kinds of things, and yeah. all those dreams were completely squashed.
3: Did uh, they have to stay undercover? or were they yeah, yeah
2: yeah and in fact for for a very long time uh, that was right around the time when my my mom and dad were divorced um, and uh, amicably which is very hard to see in a, in an islamic you know uh, country um, they were both fairly intellectual so they made the decision to to be very civil about it to this day which is awesome um, but yeah, they were divorced, and so I, in first grade, when first grade started, I started to go and uh, live part time with my mom. My mom was living in a quote-unquote hideout house where there were a lot of members of different groups living in that house. Um, so it was a it was a vibrant time because you were dealing with these wonderful brilliant minds from different factions that are sitting there m- very much like what we're sitting around this, uh, this table with the lights hanging down. And I was under that table listening to them discussing these great things that are going to happen. And, uh, and, but, you know, they weren't hiding in, in essence. I mean, they were working. Um, they were not working in the professions that they were trained to, to work in just, just to kind of give the vibe that they were common people and they were not, you know, uh, involved in politics. So it was a really interesting time for me.
1: And then how long were you back there before it was, like, clear that things weren't working out again? Or
2: Well, I was there. I, I went to school. We were stuck. We couldn't leave at that okay. point. So l- less than a year after that, the war started with Iraq. Okay. And so Saddam Hussein decided, oh, yeah, we're going to come attack you guys. So, uh, and so... Borders were shut down. uh, People couldn't leave anymore. Um, They were mobilizing people to go to war. Um, So I was continuing through school. And after the divorce and all that happening, my mom had to move frequently. So I went to seven different schools. Yeah, seven total different schools. Counting the one in the United States, so first grade in different school, second grade in different school, wow. third grade in different school, fourth and fifth oh. in a different school. So I learned to become friends with people very quickly. You know, yeah. you, just, you just have to kind of do that. Um, but yeah, um, so I was there until I was 13, and then the war was getting extremely violent. We had Scud missiles coming down. Um, Air raids almost every night. Um, I would set my alarm for two o'clock in the morning because we know they were coming. The Iraqi jets would come, would be coming, and our house was very close to a, um, you know, a, a military base, um, so you could hear the anti-air uh, guns going and. You know, the glass, which, you know, rattle. And, you know, today we, we associate with, you know, the fireworks in 4th of July. a Totally different meaning for me. So I, I relate very well with the veterans, uh, bless them, who, who go through much more ex- severe experiences that I went through. But you know, Are there
1: still things today that you hear and it kind of takes you absolutely.
2: back? Absolutely. I, I, don't, I don't go to uh, fireworks. If there's oh, wow. fireworks going on, I have my ear- earbuds in and I'm cranking music to the loudest noise because wow. it, it does affect you it ptsd call it whatever but, yeah um, it does it does you know affect you in a, in a in a very profound way um so yeah that was that's when it was it was the last straw and uh, at that point my mom was also still active politically underground with a um and under assumed name she's a playwright by the way so she okay. she wrote plays poems and everything else and so everything she was writing about was anti sort of establishment yeah and someone kind of decided that they were going to tell the morality police who she was and so she was; her life was in danger, and they were going to take her. And pr- pretty much, she would have ended up in the political, as a political pr- prisoner. Most likely, she would have been executed uh, uh, without any uh, uh, notice. And so she decided that, you know, I want to leave. And um, and so, with the blessing, and of course, with the permission of my dad, because um, he had custody in Iran. Usually, the fathers have custody, and he was nice enough to say, "Yeah, you can go." So that's when we decided to. Decide to fly out.
3: How was she able to get out? If
2: it, it was, it was just under the radar, just in the in the nick of time. So she was able to get out um, right before they were coming for her. Okay. So uh-huh. it was it was really interesting how we were able to uh, kind of s- skate underneath there. And I was just going to turn fourteen. Uh, the, you know a few months later. So it was really I was we were lucky because at age fourteen they would not allow any boys to leave. We were running out of people to send to war. Um, several of my friends, when I was in school, who were not doing ve- well in school with the blessing of their parents, went to the front lines. Mm-hmm. Um, so, At were you 14? able? At 14. Oh, my.
1: Yeah. Were you able to take, like, a normal commercial flight out, or how yeah, did we you... Yeah, we did. Okay. We were
2: lucky enough. Yeah. I was I was one of the lucky people that did that, but there were a lot of other people that had to sneak out through the borders with Pakistan or with Turkey, Yeah. and there were a lot of people that, um, unfortunately, uh, paid some people to get them across the border, but the people that got paid were in cahoots with the Iranian government or with the Turkish government, so they would... You know sneak you with sheep like herds of sheep across the land like in the Kurdistan and uh, the northeast uh, Northwest of Iran, and they would sneak him out, and then they c- come across the border They take the sheep hide off and then all of a sudden the police would be right there They'll uh-huh. bring him back to Iran and they would get wow. persecuted pretty heavily So I was one of the lucky ones and then what were your
1: feelings at the time when you were leaving was it? um you know, I'm glad to get out of here? Or was it, I'm leaving my friends and family and?
2: You, the second, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I was very angry, you know. I love my family. I have a huge family, you know. Yeah. They're very similar to the, <laughs> uh, you know, different people who like, who like to have large families. You mm-hmm. know. Um, so I have 50 plus cousins. And um, my grandparents, I have very con- deep connection with my grandmother on my mom's side. Um, may she rest in, well, she's not in, she's, in my opinion, I, I spiritually think that she's around me all the time. So yeah. I don't believe in you know us dying and everything else. But her spirit is with me all the time. So yeah, I have very close connection with her, close connection with a cousin of mine who is like a brother, and um, friends. So yeah, it's, I mean, you have to cut those ties and have to go to a different country. At, and
3: at 14, which at is... 13, actually. 13,
2: yeah. 13, yeah. yeah. Um, so I we went to France, <laughs> and France is very open. You know, the first thing you see on TV is, you know, uh, things that you don't normally see in Iran. <laughs> so uh, I was I was a 13-year-old, raging hormones, and uh, very angry and, and confused and couldn't understand the language. And <laughs> all of a sudden, you're thrown into a situation, and you don't know what the hell is going on. So... <laughs> um, but yeah, it was it was it was an interesting time when we when we went to uh, Paris. So you guys
1: kind of started over there. Did yeah. your your mom had connections there or something? Or
2: my aunt, my mom's sister, lives in the United States. She left Iran many years ago, and okay. uh, she's married to a wonderful um, uncle of mine, if you will. I call him my uncle Arthur. Yeah, and um, and he's from uh, um, Lowell, Massachusetts. So he was from the Northeast, large Catholic family. So. Um, and so anyway, she said, you know what, why don't you guys come to the United States? Um, because that would be, there would be a way for us to get to the United States, whether it's through uh, tourist visa, student visa, or even political asylum status. So we decided to go to Paris, because my dad's uncle lived in Paris, and he was going to be a good connection for us, at least for the time being. My mom sold everything she had in her life savings. Her total life sa- savings was about, say, $10,000. And we burned through that very quickly um, when we were in Paris. And in Paris, we went to try to get a visa to come to the United States. We got denied. Um, this is 1986. Um, so they decided, well, we got to go to a different country. And this is before everything was completely computerized. So you can go from one country to another country and then be able to apply for another visa if you got denied in one country. Yeah. So we decided to take a train all the way down to the south of France, and then go across to uh, Italy to Genoa, which is a very um, industrial town in Italy. Beautiful people, just industrial, very kind of difficult area. And uh, so we went across. We got lucky. We, we got hooked up with a lawyer, um, uh, American lawyer, and uh, said, OK, we can you know, at least get you guys an interview. And uh, so we got an interview. We burned through uh, half of my mom's savings Mm -hmm. (laughs) just getting hiring that lawyer to to get us into that interview. We got into that interview, and I remember uh, the lawyer coaching me and say, you know what, make sure you don't say this, say that. Um, So then you know you're at least you're what you're. Describing is genuine, um, I said, "Sure, you know, I just want to go get an education in the United States, and I'm trying to flee war and persecution." And so that's what, uh, in my broken English at the time, and uh, I got a <clears throat> student visa to come to the United States, and my mom got a tourist visa because my she was my uh, mom. So with those two things in hand, we went back to Paris and basically, with the rest of the money, bought a ticket. We arrived in the United States. Actually, we had to borrow a couple thousand dollars from my dad's uncle and my my, uh, aunt here in the U.S. So we actually came to the United States with several thousand dollars in the negative. Oh, wow. And um, started... Here and well, we, we arrived here in Iowa City, Iowa. And oh, <laughs> that's, that's where the-, the connection
3: to Iowa is. Yeah, that's, okay. that's right,
2: that's the Iowa connection. Absolutely. The heart of the Midwest, there, exactly. It's exactly. a beautiful place. I mean, I tell you, uh, it's very, very quiet, but uh, the university is amazing over there. So, um, make a long story short, we were just there, and and uh, and I start high school. Um, coming in, I had 13 year old with a full grown mustache, and all the other th- people that are in high school are 14, <laughs> and they're like. Wow, you looked pretty old, and uh, and so anyway, um, got, getting used to that. I started English as a second language. My mom started working immediately, um, just doing odd jobs and um, you know, working in Goodwill Industries, sorting things out. I started working in Goodwill. I started working Domino's Pizza. Uh, I still throw a mean pizza dough. Uh, <laughs> it's a skill you've learned for life. Yes, a fantastic skill. We we have we have pizza nights nice with the kids, yeah. so I, that's I get I get to throw the dough in the air, and they'll they'll enjoy that. So. Um, so anyway, that's you know that was the arc. We ended up in Iowa City. What was the,
1: I guess, weirdest thing about American culture? So first of all, did you know? Had you seen
2: America on TV? What did you know about it? Ahead oh of yeah. Time? We, okay, so you had a perception coming uh, in. Absolutely, we had a really positive perception yeah. of America. And I, we never, you know, it's interesting. Um, most people think that people who live in the Middle East are, you know, anti-American. Yeah. Uh, they're not anti-American people um and i don't i don't ever remember having a negative feeling to any american toward any american you know Person and, and, and citizen of the United States, it was more about the policies circling right. back in 1953. It's more about the politics of what happened and what the policies were toward the people in Iran or in other countries. Sure. So people get angry because of that, uh, not necessarily the people. So the perception we had, we watched American films. Right. You know, I grew up watching you know just about every kind of American movie that you can watch, mm-hmm. and we uh, wanted to be emulated. We wanted to be uh, like Americans. Um, and because it was the fact that most Americans are so relaxed and we're just kind of we're easy to talk to. Yeah. So it's perfect. You arrive in Iowa City and people are just extremely open and welcoming and they just want to sit down and talk to you. And there's no animosity and they're not pointing fingers at you, telling you you're such and such. Oh, so it was a very... Even though you were, you know, whatever
1: foreign or looked different than everyone, everyone was welcoming in the Midwest. Even with school and all
2: that, it wasn't. Yeah, it was lucky because Iowa City is a very eclectic um, uh, community. Yeah, university kind of brings the people from all all across the world. So when I went to high school, I saw people from all different backgrounds. I got my best friends were from Vietnam and. uh, uh, Colombia, um, all different, around, different countries around the world. So it was really cool that we had that. But then, of course, we had you know, Americans as well, who, was Amer- who were American-born. And they were very nice, mostly. Uh, just a few bad apples. But I had a few bad apples when I lived in Iran, too. A bunch of bullies. Yeah. So they'd come over and tell you, hey, you know, where did you park your camel? And it, that didn't dawn on me. My English wasn't good enough. <laughs> so I laughed at them. Yeah. You know, this is the best way to defuse someone with bigotry. Just laugh, smile. You, know, you look somebody in the eye and you just smile at them, and that actually, I think, gets them a little more angry, and it kind of diffuses the situation because they can't get past the smile. They want to get a negative reaction so they can yeah. have an antagonism to to be able to, you know, um, you know, feed off of. Right. I just smiled. Now my English as a second language overheard it, and she was fuming, and so she pulls me over and says, "You know, uh, did you hear what he said? It was a very pretty stupid comment." And I said, no, what did he he say? So she explained it to me, and and I just busted out laughing even louder. And that was kind of against what she expected. And she said, why are you laughing? I said, I've never seen a camel in my life. (laughs) (laughs) Because in Iran, we don't have camels. Right. (laughs) Big misperception there. Big misperception. So, yeah, but, you know, it was overwhelmingly very positive experience. And then... Your mom was only here on a tourist visa. So yeah. Did she have to head back, or what happened when that ended? Yeah, when the time was getting close to her visa running out, we were pretty much at at a point where, you know, we were getting gathering the documents and making sure that we can at least mount a case for political asylum, uh, because if she, she would have gone back, she would have been executed. So, we were able to get another lawyer um, in Iowa who specialized in working with uh, political asylees, and. Um, you know, it's interesting. I don't want to get into politics too much, but in it was right before it was like nineteen eighty eight is when we had to uh, you know basically mount the case, and um, during that time we went through a pretty thorough background check. I mean, fingerprints, X-rays, documents. Everything, it, And
1: this is just to get you here as a refugee, not, not, this wasn't for citizenship or anything like that.
2: No, no, this was when, when we were okay. here, we, when yeah. we arrived in the, in the United States and we were trying to get the case to go through politi- through political asylum for my mom to be able to stay. Just I could stay, stay because I'm a student. I okay. was a student. So I could continue on. So what you're saying is just for her to stay here, it, there was a whole big uh, Absolutely. process
1: and background yeah. check.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. And during, at that time, but computerized, com- computers were coming along a lot more and, you know, the background checks and and things like that where i were able to do that pretty easily. But I mean obviously now is a lot more thorough. You know, it's a flash like that. And you yeah. can find background from someone in, you know, Interpol or something like that. But um, when we were here, they they put us through a pretty rigorous uh, interview process, multiple interview processes, uh, explaining things, making sure the documents were were not forged or anything right. like that, where they would check. So it was a lot of back and forth and And it took until 1990 until she was granted political asylee status. And we were able to get, uh, um, she was able to get her green card. And I was able to get my green card through her. And then five years later, I was able to apply for my citizenship. And it was a pretty cool moment. Yeah, what was that process like? Well, during the time that I was here in uh, in Iowa City, I was working, like I said, a, you know, Domino's, pizza, odd jobs, you know, and, um, uh, anything that I could do to try to make extra money while I was in school full time. Uh, but I started to also, and I played soccer, by the way, that was, that was my carbon, uh, or carbon ath- athletics. And, uh, I was pretty good at it. Um, and, uh, at the same time that I was playing, I was also coaching, uh, young kids. Uh, and, uh, then we started to form traveling squads. So I was working with, a uh, group group of kids from age nine. And I work with these kids from age nine all the way to age 16. And um, it was really cool because when we went to get sworn in for my citizenship, this was when I was getting sworn in for citizenship was when I was in dental school, my uh, second, almost third year of dental school. Okay. So, and I was still coaching them while I was in dental school full-time. So, We went there, went to the courthouse in Davenport, Iowa, and all of a sudden I look back and the whole team is there. Oh, that's cool. They're dressed up in their their jerseys and they're back there with their parents. It was like one of the coolest moments ever. So it was really... Everything come in full circle because, you know, you, you devote so much of your time and your effort <laughs> with these kids. And, and then you see how they really you know, value what you've done for them. Mm-hmm. And to this day, I stay in touch with most of them thank, thanks to Facebook, I suppose. It <laughs> uh, keeps everybody uh, in touch. It does. It does. Even my family back home, which is really interesting. Even though Facebook is getting blocked in Iran, uh, Instagram is a better way to go. That's why I'm uh, on Instagram. Uh, yeah, um, most of my family stays in touch with me with that. But yeah, but it was a really cool experience. Yeah, uh, it
1: is interesting how sports and coaching build those kind of relationships. I mean, I know you guys see it all the time at the gym, and it's it's like a great way to build a community and you shared suffering. You're working together toward a goal and absolutely. meeting regularly, and um, it just builds. Like lifelong
2: friendships, it seems like it does. Long term, long term, because you know, the moment you're genuinely helping someone and they and they really work their tail off and they see the difference, as I see, I know, I know with you guys, you do that, you know, on day in day out, uh, and uh, it not only does it make you feel wonderful, but it also, you know, it, it builds something inside them. It sparks something inside the person you're coaching, and like you said, it, it's a it's friend, beyond friendship. I think it's something a little deeper than that. I yeah. think it's really cool.
3: So that actually, you mentioned dentistry, you went to dental school, Yeah. but that reminded me of a story I heard at some point that part of what has inspired you with the way you do dentistry yeah. was your experience when you first came over Yeah. with, you had some cavities and tell us about that.
2: <laughs> um, well in Iran during the war, you know, I, I was a little segue there. My uncle, my mom's uh, brother, and he's passed on um he was a dentist in iran and so he he was the one who was taking care of us but back then materials were hard to come by and people didn't go to dentists for regular checkups we only went in when our face was swollen and we had an abscess <laughs> and it was usually involved extracting a tooth which was not a fun thing to go through um and you know and i, I locked my chocolates and i locked my sh- sugar and everything else and really the cheapest thing we had in iran to eat was sugar mm-hmm. so you know the, the Dairy was on um, uh, rations. We had ration coupons, by the way. You know, something that you probably remember, we remember from American history during the Second World War where people had ration coupons and they couldn't get any food. Uh, so we had ration for dairy. We had ration for, you know, rice, for meat. Um, and so we. the cheapest common denominator was bread and sugar mm-hmm. and, and, like, jams and things like that. So that's all I ate. So pretty... Almost every tooth had a cavity when I came to the United oh, wow. States. So uh, we went in and, and um, went to dental school, actually, and, um, uh, and really got the whole full workup. Uh, and uh, pretty much every single tooth has a filling in my mouth or has had some kind of extensive amount of treatment. And that was one of the things that really I found really interesting because it was um, back home treatment was pretty painful and uh here they were so cool they were so nice and uh they numbed you up and and if you hadn't felt anything they would stop and uh you know they would give you some more and back then it was like you know the doctor knows best you know if you feel pain you dare not say anything you just grin and bear and hold on to the Mm -hmm. hands so yeah so that was, a, that was a good motivating factor for me. I always wanted to be in a uh, health profession because I wanted to help people because my grandfather was a doctor, my mom's dad, my uncles were doctors, uh, cardiologists and all that. So, and the other uncle was a, was a um, dentist. So uh, I always felt that it was my calling to help people. Um, just didn't know how. And, and, uh, and uh, dentistry seemed to be a good mix because I was also good with drawing and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. One of the ways I dealt with a lot of those, uh, you know, negative experiences during the war was pick up a book and just draw. Mm. And uh, and that was it. That's That was my entry point into drawing.
1: Yeah, it is interesting how you have these talents growing up and you're trying to figure out, well, what is I want to do? Because I was the same way where I would draw That's right. yeah, when yeah. I was younger. And I also did a lot of computer programming or playing around the computer. and I was like, I want to do something with these things, but I'm not sure what. And you, it's part, of, I guess, what college and high school and all that is this yeah. kind of trying to figure that out is what's going to be my career, what's going to be my hobby,
2: or maybe it switches throughout my life. But yeah, yeah, it was. And you're pretty good. I've seen your stuff. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's, uh, so that's the arc. Yeah. That's why, you know, I decided that I wanted to go into dentistry and, um, uh, I started with uh, three years of undergrad, and uh, at that point, of course, still were paying off a lot of debts and things like that, uh, and so I decided that I wanted to do early admission into dental school. Instead of finishing four years of college, I did three years and applied, and uh, they accepted me provisionally, and they said, well, you have to keep your GP at a certain level, otherwise we'll, we'll kick you back out. Well, everything worked out okay, <laughs> um, but yeah, that saved me an extra year of college tuition, and... Uh, and you know, so I'm the DDS minus any other um, degrees. So
3: interesting. So when did you start in Naperville? We were trying to remember when we first.
2: Year 2000. 2000. 2000 wow. Right. So 18 years. 18 years. Wow. Yeah.
3: So yeah. we've known you for 18 years. That's right. That's crazy. To it's been it. my pleasure. Right, right. <laughs> so what we always say that whenever we go to see you, we always come away with some new snippet of knowledge. Uh-huh. Every time, there's something new that you share with us. Yeah. What's the latest? In the dentistry world,
2: oh my God, how much time do we have? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll try to keep it short. Uh, the the coolest thing that we've seen um, in sort of restorative dentistry, which is you know patients getting fillings, or preventive dentistry, is the fact that materials are getting better, uh, so much better than what we used to have. We used to have you know amalgams and silver fillings and things like that, and we have resins now, and we've had resins for years, but they're getting better and better and better. In one particular. Uh, um, change that has happened is that a lot of the materials now, when you place them on the teeth, they have the ability to uh, remineralize or reharden, which means that when you're, you know, your saliva is filled with calcium and a lot of minerals already, so your, your saliva is actually hardening those, those filling materials. And those materials, when they get micro-cracks, because when we bite down, we can get little cracks on them, so those cracks can actually be uh, self-fixed, um, if you will, uh, with the presence of these minerals that are present. Toothpaste have, obviously, um, most toothpaste have uh, fluoride some don't and the ones that have fluoride also can help re-strengthen those materials so materials can stick you know last longer and they can prevent recurrence of cavities yeah. at mm. the same time uh, which is something we didn't have before so uh and so this is really exciting stuff the other you know huge segment in dentistry is that we used to people ha- people used to lose teeth and then they'll be like well the only option you have is a bridge or a um Um, partial, removable partial or dentures, now we have implants and we've had implants for almost 30 years and implants have become a wonderful alternative for patients where they can replace a missing tooth fairly non-invasively even though people think implants are invasive, it's fairly non-invasive and you can replace a tooth very quickly and uh, be back to normal again, helps with your confidence and helps with your ability to chew, which is a big thing. Um, What
3: would be the biggest reason that you would give someone like Kevin and I, who don't get our teeth cleaned often enough, what's the biggest reason to get your teeth cleaned?
2: Well, um, frequently. Frequently, frequently. Uh, The biggest, uh, I think the biggest um, uh, problem that we see in dentistry is the fact that our mouth is a cesspool. And I hate to make that wonderful (laughs) mental image for people. But, you know, our our toilet bowl is cleaner than our mouth. Um, There's so many different bacteria. There's so many different strains of bacteria that are present in our mouth. I know. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it. Kevin's making faces. Over here. Yeah. Um, uh, there's so many bacteria, and and each one of those, each one of them produces a certain kind of waste product, uh, whether it's acid as a as a byproduct of what they eat. And when we eat, they eat, so they produ- they produce acid and they produce uh, a lot of um, other toxic materials. And those toxic materials can get into the bloodstream through our gum tissues. And so the effects are not just local in the mouth. They can actually go systemic. Uh, We can go to the heart, to the liver, to um, all the different organs in the body. And so gum disease, actually, and uh, um, tooth decay, secondly, gum disease as the first primary problem is is a huge problem. Over 80% of the population in the United States uh, has some form of gum disease, whether it's gingivitis, which is just bleeding gums when you floss. Your gums shouldn't bleed, by the way, when you floss. Good um, to know. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And, um, and you know, I'm, I'm not immune from that because I have a lot of prosthetic devices. So when, sometimes when I floss, I, I get bleeding. So I go back in and I get it checked out and find out what's going on. But there shouldn't be any bleeding in the gums. So that's the basic, you know, the gingivitis is the basic one. And then you can get to advanced periodontitis, which is the these toxic materials can get so far down and below the gum line into the bone where the bone starts to melt away and when you lose bone around your teeth it doesn't grow back. It's not like if you God forbid break your arm or you know Mm -hmm. separate something or you know break something it fuses back together it doesn't in the mouth. That's one of the only problems we have and it's a constant problem. You know you one day you're like you're flossing you're like yes I did it I'm (laughs) the best I'm the you know give me a star and everything else and give me a crown for doing a great job Uh, and then the next morning if you you skip well the bacteria aren't going to you know take a break they're going to eat the food and that you eat and especially if i don't know how often you guys eat you know because i know you work out a lot so you know you do you do have to you know probably f- hydrate and, and eat on a frequent basis so when the more to, you know, frequently we eat the more frequently we're feeding the bacteria so that becomes a uh, a problem too so uh, yeah, so the idea is, you know, maintenance is a good idea, and even if you're the best flosser in the world, which I think I am, but I'm not, uh, <laughs> and uh, the the problem is that, you know, you could develop uh, problems um, in areas where you cannot clean very well. So professionally getting your teeth clean on a regular basis, minimum every six months, is a really good idea.
3: So it's good for our whole health, not just our mouth.
2: Bingo. I'll give, so, you, I'll
3: yeah.
0: give you once a year, max. That's
2: <laughs> like, <laughs> So I, I guess we're going to have to just sneak in when you're sleeping in your house and just, you know, open you up and just clean your teeth when you're sleeping. That sleep would in. be great. That would be great, yeah. That's yeah. A, maybe that's uh-huh. a new Mo- service you can think about offering. Mobile dentistry. Mobile <laughs> yeah. dentistry. You know, I'll while come you're and, asleep. Uh, while you're asleep. That's yeah. like... it
0: be like the tooth fairy. You got it. Yeah, you, got it. Yeah, you got it. Perfect. Wow. Tooth clean fairy. I like fairy. this idea. That's good. So we can market this. <laughs> bacteria love sugar. So yes. is sugar bad because of the secondary things? It, it lets the bacteria populate, or is it bad just on its own? Does it actually do damage to your teeth?
2: The sugar by itself does not.
0: OK. Um,
2: it's actually the, the acidity in the things that we eat. So anything that's ha- that has the ability to, to produce acid or is acidic by itself. So if you put orange slice on your teeth, it'll do damage because of the acidity. Okay. So the, it's the acidity that causes the problem. Um, the, the lower the pH, the higher the acidity. So the, the low pH foods tend to eat away at the enamel, which is the outer covering of the teeth, the enamel on the teeth has no nerve endings, so you don't feel any pain when your teeth are dissolving. So the best mental image I could create for you is that: imagine your teeth are a little Alka-Seltzer uh, tablet, and you drop them in a in water, and you start seeing the Alka-Seltzer tablets starting to dissolve away. Mm-hmm. Well the liquid is acid that's sitting on your teeth and then your, the enamel starts to dissolve away as a result of that. So sugar by itself is not a problem. It could be a problem in other parts of the body, but yeah. it, it is it on the teeth itself. In the absence of bacteria, it would be an, not a problem. But when the bacteria are there, and we know they're there all the time, we cannot eliminate the bacteria 100%. Um, when the bacteria are there, they will they will utilize and they metabolize that uh, sugar, and the byproduct is acid. So now, if you're drinking something that's already acidic, like soda pop, uh, doesn't matter if it's sugar or, or non-sugar. Or
3: my or my favorite sparkling water.
2: <laughs> Your yeah, sparkling water right does it
3: have does it have any? There's n- there's no sugar. You're good. Oh, okay, good. Yeah. I mean the
2: carbonation has a, creates a little bit of acidity. Okay, but it's in comparison to so that that's what I drink. I okay. drink I drink carbonated water if I want to really splurge. Ooh. Yeah, so you're okay. fine. You're what fine. foods do you not eat for dental reasons? For dental reasons, yes. well, anything that has got gobs and gobs of sugar on it. Right. Um, so refined sugars. Let, let's let's define that. Refined sugars. So uh, high fructose corn, corn syrup. Mm-hmm. Completely stay away from that. I think you can get plenty of natural, good sugar from fruits, from vegetables, from uh, um, you know just any natural source that you can get would be the best, and the. Best best thing with having a natural sugar through a fruit and vegetable is that you also have the fiber present, which really helps with digestion. But also the fiber helps clean off some of the plaque, some of the bacterial buildup on the teeth. Like apple, when you have an apple with the with the uh, skin on it, the skin actually skin on the apple helps clean off some of the bacteria that are on your teeth now don't quote me that eating apple is equivalent to brushing or flossing (laughs) but (laughs) it does help i always heard an apple a day keeps the
1: dentist
0: away that's a good thing yes Yes, it definitely does yeah Uh doctor dentist (laughs) same thing gets fuzzy (laughs) after a while so i think the question everybody probably wants to know is do you give out candy at halloween I do not. No, <laughs> my wife does. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but she's also a dentist. She's also a dentist. Okay. No, no.
2: Uh, I, I personally don't like to, but we do. We do. Um, okay, it's a joke. Uh, so we do. We do. One, once a year, I think it's all right. It's you know, all all bets are off. My kids eat, eat candy, and they get a you know, four or five pieces, and that's about it. The rest of it, we you know, store and all donate and do whatever we need to do. Uh, but yeah, we do give it out.
3: I got in big trouble from my kids one year because they had gathered all their candy. They ate it probably over two days. They had had pieces of this candy. And uh, they kind of forgot about it, and I threw the rest away. And I've done that every year, but they found out one year that I had thrown it away. And Mm. I got in trouble. But... Oh yeah, that's enough. You're the parents.
2: You're Uh, the parent. Yeah, you're looking out for their best health. That's (laughs) That's right. That's right. That's right. So yeah, we do give out. So one thing
1: I think is interesting is how do you see dentistry evolving in the future with new technology? So I remember, you know, there was a time where it was like. You would do the de- all the detection for a cavity, right? You're poking around, or you're kind of trying to figure it out yourself. And now you have this laser that will beep when it finds a cavity. And I remember you saying something, I'm not going to get the stat right, I'm sure you can give it to me, yeah. of how much more accurate it is. So, I mean, are, are we moving to this point where there'll be more? automation like looking at stuff in our teeth and less of the dentist having to do it or where's that heading and and i guess tell us a little bit about that. that's
2: great i think i think technology uh, if used properly in any profession i think is, is a phenomenal thing um so you have to you have to use technology in a Responsible, ethical way. You could you could use technology in any way you want, and you can skew the results if you want to. We all know that. Uh, but the technology in dentistry, like you said, the cavity detecting uh, lasers have come along immensely. There's actually, you know, the one that I use in my office um, is phenomenal. It's really the accuracy in comparison to that little hook that we use, uh, and that hook, you know, if, depending on how sharp the tip is, if you poke at something sharp at something that has grooves in it you'll find some kind of stickiness mm-hmm. so you have to use you know tech uh, the human factor the doctor factor is important because you know you can have a machine doing poking and the machine feels the poke or you know detects the poke and says oh there is a cavity no it's uh, not necessarily true you have to look at the radiographs or x-rays look at the patient's history that's a big one because a lot of patients come in first time seeing a dentist and I see them and, I'm, and I feel a little poke there I say you know Last time you were there, Dennis, was there a problem or not? Or you know, was there any issues? Look at the X-rays and kind of di- make a decision based on all the data that are present. So then you add in the lasers, and then there's actually and next generations that are coming in detection as well, where there is a uh, uh, the infrared light, and you can actually see um, you know a grayscale image where it actually trans-illuminates oh, the wow. tooth. So you're going beyond just detecting. So anyway, the poking one is only about 65% effective in detecting cavities with a trained dentist with a trained yeah. dentist and it's only you are only usually able to detect those types of cavities on the chewing surface of the teeth or if there is a cavity that's large enough in between the teeth yeah the rest of it relies on x-rays so a lot of people come into the dentist and they say well I don't want any x-rays you know I, I don't want the radiation the amount of radiation you get is pretty minimal in comparison to background radiation of standing in the sun for 5 to 10 minutes believe me I know I know the I know the rads and so if you don't have that x-ray in between the teeth on an annual basis, and some patients are, have some severe issues where you usually want to see them and every six months or every four months, and you get x-rays every six months, because you can see that cavity can progress very quickly. Yeah. Uh, but 65% effectiveness with the pokiness. <laughs> when you use the laser, you're up to 90s, 90 to 95% accuracy rate, because it, it relies on shining the light and it's measuring the softness internally because you can trans transilluminate the teeth yeah, which is really cool then the next generation is even getting it higher because not only are you using the lasers but you're also shining a light in multiple directions not just straight down you're going from the side and you're getting to see the full picture so it's getting better and better every day That's awesome. Progress. Pretty pretty cool. Pretty cool. I I have a question. This this comes
1: from there's a guy you know, everyone has that guy at your office that's into the conspiracy theories.
2: (laughs) This guy
3: That's Kevin at the gym, by the way. In case case you wondered.
2: (laughs) And he's sitting close to me. Oh boy.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. This is funny
2: though. So
1: just recently he was telling us about, you know, fluoride's a poison and they're Mm -hmm. putting fluoride in the water and they don't need to be putting fluoride in the water. Yeah. And you know, so an- uh, another friend and I at the office started Googling a little bit, mm-hmm. and we we're like, "Well, some of the points he's making aren't totally crazy." Yeah. So, what's the deal with fluoride in the water? Oh is, a, g- is the government controlling our mind via uh, the fluoride in the water?
2: Oh. <laughs> do, do we have aluminum foil here <laughs> or not? <laughs> fluoride, as an element, is poison. Let's make that clear. So, um, when you have elemental fluoride, is poison. Uh, Chlorine gas, as an element by itself, can kill you in, in a fraction of a second. Um, so sodium, if you put it in, in water, it'll explode in your face as an elemental form. So anything in an elemental form has its negatives and positives. Now, the fluoride that is placed in water, and they've done a lot of titrating, by the way. It used to be a lot more, because what, what initially, they thought if you put the fluoride, and it's a fluoride salt that we're putting in there. Okay. So you take sodium and chlorine, combine them together, you get table salt. You don't die from ingesting it, and you don't explode. Well, most people <laughs> that's don't. Good, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a salt. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the fluoride that we have in toothpaste and in the water is in a salt form. Okay. So when you have that, then the negative effects are negate, negated. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Anytime you eat salt and in any any type of form, you can you can disengage the elements, and then you could can, can get elemental form if you want. But in the biological form, the amount that you get is pretty minimal. So they titrated the amount that they, they put in, in the water. Because the problem that they saw was that the teeth were getting so hard, they had fluorosis. So there was too much mineral content. So the teeth would start to have a lot of white splotchy uh, appearances. And in many cases, um, they, found that they found it in the, in the elemental form that actually turned the teeth brown. Wow. In those situations, yes, but that in the in the natural water that, that, that are placed in the cities, they used to have it at a slightly higher form and because of the higher incidence of fluorosis they titrated it down and now it's a lot less than what it was in 10, 15 years ago because they were also getting fluoride in our toothpaste. And that's right. in yeah. our water, you know the bottled water, depending on where the bottled water is bottled from, mm. it may be they may have natural occurring fluoride as well. Um, so no government is not trying to control our minds. Uh, if that was the case, then you know we're in big trouble. You Do know? you think it should be in there though? Think it should be in the water in certain areas? Yes, I think it's uh, you know in in um, areas where there's there's lack of access to dentistry, mm. I think it's really helpful.
0: So not in America then?
2: Well, certain areas in America are very much still under under served. Um, certain areas in Tennessee, Kentucky, um, Flint, Michigan. Um, you, you look, you look at the way things are going and many differences in America, I think we're still very much underserved and partly because a lot of the dentists don't want to go and work in those areas because there's not enough compensation for it to happen. And we can get into a big discussion about that, but I, I think we, that would be another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I think, I think uh, in America in, in general, we are pretty good with, with our access to dental care, but there are many areas that are underserved. I think it's a good public service to, to have. Uh, I mean, you want to have minimal amount of, uh, amount of uh, uh, therapeutic amount of uh, uh, material that would help us prevent disease. So it's it's a big question a lot of people don't like it i understand that it's, it's a personal reason that they don't want i have patients that don't use fluoridated toothpaste and i understand that but generally when they come back there's a cavity yeah. so <laughs> i i tell them yeah you know that's that's what it is so um but you know it is it is what it is i think it's um no we're not getting control sure okay. yeah. have to worry about that one Well, that's a relief yeah um so you had this thriving dental
1: practice. Mm-hmm. I remember we came in one day, and you're like, hey, I'm, I've written a book, or I'm working on
2: writing a book. What made you decide to go from uh, dentist to author? Um. Well, it, you know, the first book I wrote, it was, it was just kind of a strain, you know, I'd call it a mental fart, if you will. Um, but <laughs> no, no. no. Um, Which book was that? It was the children's book that I drew. It yes. Was, yeah, it was I a, thought it was a great book. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It was very basic. You know, I, I did it for my son. It was, I was inspired by my son he had a balloon in his hand, let go. And then, you know, it was a whole ordeal for, for a week where he was very sad. And, and so we decided to, or I decided to draw that. And then I, kinda of ran it by my wife and, and said, Yeah, let's do it. You know, and so I just did it and, and it was self published. I didn't really go into the publishing thing about it. It was more about, you know, something for him. I wanted to him to to just kinda of have something in his hand to help him get over the problem that was very simple, letting go of a balloon. Now you can use that as an analogy for other things, of course. Um, but yeah, the, the book that I that you're talking about, uh, that was sort of about when my son, my oldest son, turned four. I just had an epiphany, and I and I had I had a little injury during that time. I had a little neck in, neck injury, and I, and I had a bit of a numbness in my hand. And that was a that was a kind of a scary thing because at that point you, you don't know if you can practice dentistry anymore. And uh, um, it was a recurring injury from the years when I played soccer, and I had landed on my neck and and you know had some injury there and. Um, and then they found out from an MRI that you know that was uh, there was a condition that I had. There was a genetic condition. With my uh, spinal column is just narrower than usual. So any kind of extra weight and anything else on the on the back of the neck is can just snap it, and I'll be done, and I'll go paralyzed from neck down. So that was scary. So the epiphany came to me. I said, you know what, I, you know, you feel like you know there's not much time when you see something like that, um, now I've made it through war. I made it through mm-hmm. parents divorce. I made it through immigration, coming to a different country, making it through all that, all those, you know, uh, call them bumps and hurdles or whatever they are. But this kind of is going to the core where you feel like, okay, you know, you could go from being able to be fully functional to someone who's going to be in a wheelchair or someone who's not going to be able to function. And, um, so I said, I need to leave a legacy for my sons. And my youngest one was just born. He was less than one years old. So I do my first uh, uh, panel of this graphic novel as holding my son in my hand as he was falling asleep, just telling him, you know what, I want to tell you my story. And um, from my own point of view, in a graphic novel format. Now, that's a very hard sell for publishers. Uh, no one wants to read a graphic novel nowadays. People just want something, you know, that uh, that is inspiring and is going to make them, you know, feel really good. They yeah. don't want to read negative things, uh, or they want to read controversial things, you know, yeah. about politics or about something that's going on. You know, it's all about the two-second, you know, snap, give me or give me, give me a thirty-second video. It used to be two-minute videos. Yeah, that's now, too long now. Too long now. The, yeah. the attention span is too short. So anyway, it was, a, it was a big hurdle for me to say, all right, I need to write this thing about my life. And I want them to know where I came from, from the moment I was born until uh, when I um, immigrate to the United States. So the first book that, that I'm working on, I finished it, actually, and, and it's in the hand of my uh, agent right now. That's well, exciting.
3: So is it 13 years you were working on it, 12, 13 years?
2: Yeah, from 2009, yeah, that's, that's about, yeah. Yeah. I've, I've always
1: feel like, so just f- for myself drawing, it it's, to me, it's so much harder to, uh, do a graphic novel than just to write a novel. So yeah. writing, I can write with words. I can think about it with a graphic novel. You've got to convey the emotion on the faces. When you draw them, you got to think there's just so many more things to think about. You have to think about the framing. It's like, where's the camera at in this picture and all this stuff that you don't think about and just telling a normal story and writing out dialogue or whatever. I mean, uh, absolutely. It's, it's yeah. uh, it's a process.
2: It is. It. It. It was. I learned a lot during that process. You. You nailed it on the yeah. head. I know we talked about some of the graphic novels yeah. that we. Had, uh, we had mutually read. Um, you know, um, the Blankets was the one yeah. that we were talking about. It's phenomenal. Oh my God? Ama- just amazing. Yeah. And then we talked about Habibi as well, which was a really good one. Um, but yeah, the frame, the point of view is is a really hard thing in a graphic novel because you know, and, and you. You don't know how the how the audience or who who is reading it, the reader, is going to react to that point of view. Do they see it from that same point of view? And then yeah, you have to kind of come up with a dialogue as, as well. Whereas when you're writing it, you know, yeah. it's um... so I actually wrote the first part of it and then I did the panels okay. and I decided no, that's just way too time consuming. So I just started drawing and doing the di- dialogue and that moved a lot faster. So it took me almost four years for the first 10 pages uh-huh. and then the rest of it just started flowing. Oh, so you're saying instead of like writing it all out, you just kind of draw it first? I drew it. Yeah. And then I came up with the dialogue and cause I had the story in my mind. I know what my story was, of yeah. course. And, and then I would actually interview my mother and I would interview all the different people that were in my life and then uh, come up with the different things. I gathered a lot of photos from the old times and, and just started to kind of draw things that would, that would uh, resemble that, um, but, yeah, it was, uh, it was very cathartic. Um, mm-hmm. My wife said that there was some sometimes, you know, when I was covering the divorce chapter, she's like, you were a bear to be around. I said, yeah, you know, it's... was uh, kind of like you're working through it as you Yeah, yeah. I think it's. I think anyone, I think whatever you find in life, you know, whether it's drawing, whether it's working out, whether it's doing any kind of activity that, that you connect with is so important because it, it helps you, uh, you know air out whatever is deep inside and i think it really helps you get through it and i think anyone if you find something in life that that is like that Mm -hmm. man go with it go with that gut feeling and just do it um to quote nike Uh,
3: (laughs) what's the name of your novel does it have any
2: i cannot disclose that because (laughs) we don't know yet but but it will come out it will come out soon so
3: it's one of these like where people know if they're having a boy or a girl when they're expecting. They yeah. know what the name is but they won't share it with you.
2: Kind of, yes. Okay. Yeah. All right. I, I will not have so a, a, I will not born, have a I will not reveal I will not have a gender reveal or name revealing party <laughs> with colors. Okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> okay. But no, it's a uh, it, the the problem is that when you when you submit it, um, sometimes they will completely scrap the okay. the title that you have. I have a, I have a working title and I have even a cover for it. Uh, but I just can't say it because if I do then it'll just be kind of a I got gotcha. you. Yeah. Yeah. But I will soon, I hope. Well, we this, just we, we look
3: just look. went to a book release party for um, a friend of ours who wrote a book, and um, she was likening it to um, the people that helped her with it were like midwives who helped this project. Oh yeah, that's a very yeah, bird yeah bird sisters, project. Yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah. she had. Her husband helped her with editing, and all these people gave feedback, and it was interesting. That's
2: exactly what I went through. My uh, my uh, brother-in-law is a uh, is from journalism school in University of Iowa and film, and he he's an awesome writer, and he works at uh, in, uh, Columbia University in, in New York. So he's actually my editor. So I would send him PDF files, and he would look at it, and he would just rip it to shreds. <laughs> and then no, no, he was really nice, and so he was very helpful. Of course, my wife and just running every panel by her and she's like yeah I think I don't get this you know I can change that of course my mother as well and then of course my kids and everyone else in the family so it's uh, it's definitely a group effort and there's definitely a page that is de- dedicated uh, thanking each and every person that was involved in that so that's awesome yeah I hope it comes out soon. Uh-huh. We'll go to see it soon. We'll
3: finally get to so read the, the it. The
2: of listeners can anticipate it. Um, <laughs> Thank you.
1: But, so, along with the graphic novel, you also do political cartoons, right? Yes, yes. So, tell uh, us a little bit how you got into that, and
2: and what the spirit is behind that. It's uh, you know, uh, like I said, we deal with different things differently. So, you know, I I used to get into these long-winded discussions with people on on Facebook and social media. I said, you know what. That that's just very long and it's very time-consuming. Especially but nobody you got ever to, changes their mind. They don't. Either. Yeah, that's it's right. yeah. You know, and and no, no one. Nor should should they, unless they feel like they they have been, uh, um, you know, their, their point of view. There's something that that is clicking in their mind and says, okay, yeah, this is this makes sense to me. So I'm willing to to change. I've done that many times in my life. I've I've listened to someone from a completely opposing point of view and I said, oh, you know what? I get what you're saying, and yeah, I can. I think I can come closer to your point of view on this. And then there's sometimes like, yeah, I get what you're saying, but I'm not going to go there, Um, because it just doesn't go with my core beliefs. Um, So yeah, I decided that the political cartoon was a little easier, because uh, I could convey my thoughts in just one panel and put it out there in the world. Now, people rip it to shreds. I've actually gotten a lot of, um, and and I started that, um, political cartoons, by the way in response to what happened in iran during the green revolution where they had the elections and the election was completely rigged and yeah people got out there they had you know the the signs saying where's my vote uh and uh... They were just they were very disgruntled. Mm-hmm. It was it was almost like a second second revolution, and because of that, of course, you saw the the Arab uh, revolution that mm-hmm. happened, everything else in in Egypt, and then in Morocco and in Tunisia and everything else. So it just started to kind of go around, uh, and it started that. So was it kind of like you wanted to feel like you had a voice in that, or were, we're going to make did. a statement, or I did. It was I think that what really sparked me because when I was when I was in uh, school in Iowa, I majored in biochemistry, and I majored also in studio art. And, uh, and so I, I had old India ink pens that I that's that right. I had. And I immediately, when I saw one image that happened, or one video that I saw, and I think you probably have seen that, it was an Iranian woman that was shot in the street, and she died on the camera. Mm-hmm. And that was pl- you know shown everywhere in, in the world. Has what there, was her name? I remember Neda. Neda yes. Agha sultan Yeah, that's right. Um, so actually, I start my graphic novel with that. Uh, with that image. Uh, it I was frozen. I was sitting on my laptop and I was following it because obviously it was on the news. Um, and my son, both my sons are tugging on my shirt and I just remember looking at the, um, and I just hitting replay, hitting replay, hitting replay. Uh, because it was just, I couldn't get the image out of my head and immediately. And they were hungry, poor kids were hungry. <laughs> so they are like, Baba, Baba, I want some food and I said and I just um, and I came out of my days and I gave him some food. And then I went down to my basement and I started throwing stuff up in the air because there was you no know, there was a big box that had all those old India ink pens. And I picked the old ones and I started drawing and they were dry and I'd throw them and I'd draw and I went through like about ten of them. And I finally one of them the ink started to flow and I just drew it in one sitting. And I had two different colors. I had the Iranian flag. And that's the one that I posted on, the, on social media. And it just <laughs> caught fire, because people in Iran saw it. And, um, and I put it under my assumed name. Uh, and then after about a week, I just kept getting, putting more cartoons out about what was going on in Iran. And yeah. that's when it started. Yeah. And then I started doing cartoons about the United States. And then I did one about what happened in Norway with the shooting that happened in Utoya. Uh, a few years back, with a, a gunman who gunned down those young people, uh, which I think is a problem that it's much more prevalent, unfortunately, in the United States, and it, I'm getting sick and tired of having to draw about that. Uh, but yeah, that was the uh, um, so that's that was when it started, it and then the genesis of the it. Genesis yeah. of it, absolutely.
0: What it, was the latest uh, cartoon that you've
2: done? You know, I I decided for a little. I, I've taken the time off a little bit from from doing that. Um, since, since because you guys you know and there was a transition in my practice and everything else that's going on and some some things that were happening in the family for us that we had to uh, had to step back from that. But I started going to surrealism, uh, and uh, I actually brought one here and I can show it to you. Uh, and uh, right. the last one I posted was uh, it's not a cartoon. It's more like a uh, design. It's on my website by the way. Um, but it's uh, I was in uh, in a room where there was physical therapy going on. Uh, my son was just doing something in physical therapy and. Um, And I saw a wheelchair, and um, um, I decided that it was uh, I needed to kind of um, play with that a little bit, you know. And I, in my days when I was in Iran, I saw a lot of veterans come back from the war where they were amputated, they stepped on landmines, they were very young people, there were a lot of people that got hit by uh, chemical um, weapons uh, during the war. And uh, my own uncle unfortunately got hit by a car and is uh, paraplegic, and so um, I saw that and I said, you know what? Let me go on the surreal route for a little bit. So can
0: I post this in the uh, show notes? Absolutely, so absolutely,
2: absolutely, absolutely. And so it's um, I decided to go the surreal route as far as the latest ones, um, and I just continue on and. And there was another one about music in Iran, uh, because music and dancing is forbidden, uh, and so this one is uh, that I haven't released that. But go ahead and you know take that. This is a pre-release could, for our listeners only. I can leave this one out of uh, want. Yeah, like. yeah, and it actually says music in in Farsi in in the Persian language. Okay, and then also says the word mardom, which means uh, people. Which you, it's so funny—not
1: funny, but it's. I guess it's sad. But you know, you're thinking about American movies. Like that's an American movie for us. Dirty like, dancing. Well, dirty, dirty dancing, yeah. or um. Yeah, well, they're not right. allowed to dance. What was the Kevin Bacon?
2: Oh yeah, uh, Footloose. 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 Oh, right. footloose. Yeah, it's the Same yeah. thing.
1: Like they can't dance. You know. Like, you think that's just aha, It's in the movies, but this is reality.
2: It's reality. It's reality. Today, today, yeah. 2018. Yeah. So we're really um in a in a very different different place. I did this one when I was in London, uh, and this was kind of a um. Crazy one. And actually, it was, this is the one that I just released. Uh, it's called Solipsism. Um, so that's another cool one that I, that I did. Um, and then, of course, the le- le- last one is this one. I haven't released that one, but I released just a foot. You probably saw it on Instagram,
0: Molly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's uh, So it's not like overt, in-your-face statements in your art, usually. Latest ones, yeah, but there, there are some that are
1: pretty darn overt. That was one of the questions I was gonna have. So, s- some of your older political yeah. cartoons are definitely making a statement. Do you ever? Oh yeah. Uh, so, a is that your? I assume that's your goal, but do you ever worry about? Oh, what's so and so gonna think about this when I post it? Or
2: are you kind of like, hey, I'm speaking my truth and? I, you know, I think uh, it's important. and I'm wearing the shirt. You know, I can say I'm a dreamer. Um, and you know, I I always come from a place of love, even though I'm very critical of uh, things that I see, because I think as a human being, we all deserve to be be shown respect. But when someone is trampling on our on our rights, someone is um, you know destroying our, our ability to be human, we need to call it out. I did that with Iranian. president, I did it with the Iranian with Khamenei, who's the quote unquote supreme leader over there. I've done it with people in the United States. I think it's important that we tell our truth. So yeah, I I tell my truth, and I don't give a damn. (laughs) Pardon my French. (laughs) I've gotten a lot of. You say, did
1: you deal with a lot of hate online.
2: Oh or? yeah, but you got to you got to see my inbox from uh, from my. <laughs> no. uh, oh yeah, there there was one. This is a really interesting one. Um, it came from Iran, uh, and the um, <laughs> whatever the person that was that was doing it, it was probably one of the trolls from the uh, um, their you know morality police because they have a lot of trolls there that that attack people, um, online and, and offline. Um, he said that you must have been abused by both your parents. To draw something like that about our great supreme leader, and then there was a couple of death threats right after that. Um, Wow! So, (laughs) you know, after a while, you grow a thick skin, and uh, and you just plow through. And I've gotten a lot of hate mail about the stuff I've drawn about what's going on in America, and uh, and that was also. But you know, I think it's important that we learn to agree to disagree, and uh, um, that's the beauty of America. That's one of the things that I love about this country. Yeah, I know we're not perfect. You know, but man, we're better than a lot of other countries in the world. I <laughs> yeah.
3: guess you've seen both sides of that coin. Huh? I yeah. have.
2: Yeah. I have. There are things that I miss about Iran. I I, I miss the the camaraderie and the and the family structure. Is the had. fam
3: the families are closer? Oh, so yeah. close. Better I mean, closer community.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We get you know I we get to see, we got to see our grandparents, our cousins, uh, several times a week. Now our cousins are living three hours away. It's mm-hmm. a bigger country, granted, but it's. It, I find that that communal kind of effect is is kind of lost by us because we, I I, I see what my what my kids get from being close to their grandparents. We're, we're blessed to have both grandparents from my from their mom from my wife's side close by to us, 20 minutes away. Yeah, they see them several times a week, but. I, after from age thirteen on, I had to create my own family. So some of my best friends are my family. Mm-hmm. I call them brothers from another mother. It, you know, if you guys see my posts, sometimes you see, oh yeah, hi brother, because I have a brother who's from Greece. I have a brother who's from Turkey. I have a brother who's who's a Caucasian American. I have a brother who's from Germany, um, and each one of them made an impact in my life, and I created that community for myself. So that's one of the things that is kind of I see. There's a miss in in America, um, at least from my personal yeah. experience. We talk about understand. that
1: a decent amount on the podcast is how community is kind of missing. It, it's declining. You know, the traditional communities don't exist as much anymore, whether yeah. it's a church or whatever. And those are getting replaced by things like your gym membership, your, your friends there, or maybe a community of artists. And yeah. people are need that community and they're they're struggling to find it other ways because they're just so much more like isolated in
2: front of a screen now. That's and, right. I, th- I think um, I think you nailed it on the head. Uh, yeah. I was talking to a good friend who's a so, uh, psychologist and, um, and you and I talk about this all the time. I read, I, we, we read books yeah, like the same but, stuff. Yeah. We, we're pretty crazy about reading like a book a week or something. And, and uh, I was reading a book about, uh, uh, trauma and, um, I talked to this good friend of mine and, and he brought up a very interesting point. He said that, um, our personalities are being split into multiple profiles, whereas before our age um, we used to have one maybe two profiles. Our profile was our analog profile that we are sitting here having a conversation, this human connection, which is a miss for a lot of people uh, in America now, and the second was just a phone telephone where you had the rotary phone or you dialed the phone and you talked to someone, mm-hmm. so you ha- you know when they hear you in an auditory form, that's a different profile than being in person. Now people have Instagram, Facebook, you got Snapchat, oh, so many different things. And they have different profiles. So they split their personality into those different profiles. And they have their niche and their their friends. And they they have to Keep up with those profiles, whether it's real or not, because they want to fit into the into their group of friends, into those profiles, and that splits their personality—not a split personality, but it splits their uh, energy and their and their humanity into multiple different aspects. Whereas we didn't used to have that. Now is this. This is where we're talking about technology being yeah. a good or a bad thing. I actually drew a cartoon about that. I think uh, you know I'll show you that afterwards if you want to see that, uh, which really really goes to the core of that. Um, that's why I took off took time off from Facebook because I needed to reconnect with my family and needed to reconnect with some of those fl- friends that I had, and um, and from time to time i do a little hiatus i just put my account on hold and i go and reconnect and i come back in a in a slightly limited form i think mm-hmm. that's a key um that i think uh, we need to really pay more attention especially for our kids sure yeah i think it's uh, it's really tough really tough nowadays but it's doable we can do it yeah
3: kevin's a non facebooker just mm-hmm. you are
2: yeah well i bless you sir that's uh <laughs> thank you <laughs> uh that's that's amazing that's i don't know how you do it
3: It's hard when you have a business, though. I mean, a lot of... um, Yeah, I would imagine, yeah. My Facebook now is, I would say, 90% business, and the other 10% is connections to family. That's right. Um,
0: Seems like Facebook gets people riled up a lot.
3: Oh, they get riled up. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, they do. There's some drama. But let's make it really controversial, and let's talk about food.
1: Ah, so, I, I knew we that was coming. To get to that before the end.
3: We know Pe- is people, this on? you know, is this on? They, yeah, it, it, beliefs it about food <laughs> are <laughs> go as deep as religion. Um, but we always find it fascinating because you learn something about somebody when you learn yeah. about the way that they eat. So I know that you're a vegan. Tell us yeah. about. I'm. I'm assuming you weren't before, and you became a vegan.
2: Oh, I was. I was a full carnivore. You, full you put carnivore. A, yeah, okay. I mean, I would. Uh, I would go to a, a very well-known Iranian uh, um, restaurant in downtown Chicago. I highly recommend it because I know you're a meat eater. And I would order a sultani. The word sultan means king, so it's a king's feast. Mm-hmm. There's two skewers of meat. One of them is a filet mignon, and I and I kid you not, it's about this long from here to here. Whoa. Kevin's mouth is starting to water. He's, over he's here. already. I can see him. His yeah, his, eye, just his, like his eyes just glazed over. He's done. He's done with the. Caramel. And then there was another skewer of of uh, ground beef with a lot of spices and onions. So there's two skewers, and then a mountain of rice, half white rice, half with dill, and then. Grilled, uh, you know, vegetables and everything else. I would eat that whole thing, and my wife is like, "I cannot believe it. You eat it and you don't get any weight." Mm-hmm. And I would go there and I would eat that. I would just polish that sucker off, and I would, you know, and the restaurant they would always look at me like this guy is crazy. So I grew up eating meat. I grew up eating a lot of dairy. And it was because I had the, we, we had this idea that, you know, you have to have dairy because the calcium, if you don't do it, you know, your bones are going to break, you know.
3: Because all of the other mammals on this earth yeah. have to drink the milk of another mammal in order to keep their bones straight. Absolutely. Right? Yeah, I mean, of course. yeah. It it makes it's, perfect sense. Yeah.
2: I mean, chimpanzees should drink, you know, human milk. It's, or, it's, or it's, it's a given. Or yeah, zebra milk Yeah, zebra milk, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, um, so yeah, I you know, but the reason where I things started to kind of click for me is that when I was having milk as a child, I remember we had feta um, when we could get the ration during the war. <clears throat> you got a cube about this big, and you would you you have it for a week for a whole family, uh, a family of four. So I would take a little bit, and I would put it on there, and I would have it on, on you know pita bread, uh, Persian pita bread and then i would go to school and i would walk to school and i would feel this grumble in my stomach it was like and all day through class i had a fog you know i was was a i was a good student in school i was always you know on top whatever top one or two three people in in school but i had a fog i just couldn't concentrate and i said yeah you know it's just the war it's the stress and whatever it is never thought anything about it Came to America, same thing. Oh, Philadelphia cream cheese, slap it on, and eat it. And then it was, yeah, yummy, yummy, and then brrrr. And (laughs) then, you know, sound would go on. And it wasn't until about seven, eight years ago where and I lived through it. And I, would, I knew, then I realized it was you know, lactose intolerance. So guess what? I would go to Costco or you know, Walmart or whatever and buy the, the uh, huge box of um, lactate. And I would pop it in one or two at a time and I would have it. I'm like, yes, this calcium is good for me. <laughs> and, uh, and I would bear through it. And it was uh, about seven, almost eight years ago that uh, we had a really bad piece of chicken. And um, both my wife and I got salmonellosis. We were done. I mean, it was like in
0: front of the TV
2: close to the bathroom. It was that bad. And uh, all of a sudden, I started thinking about, OK, what am I eating? I started thinking, really, I'm a, you know, I've had training in nutrition. I've had training in, in medicine uh, and dentistry and uh, physiology and all that. I'm like, why didn't I think about this before? And started watching a lot of documentaries, read a lot of books. Um, and uh, all of a sudden, it clicked. Like, wait a minute, it's the dairy. It's the meat that I was eating. Um, sometimes with meat, I would get the same same thing happen. Um, chicken, beef, whatever it was. I ate my bacon. I love bacon. I know you love bacon. Sure. <laughs> I've, li- I've listened to that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> my wife does, too. My kids do, too. Yeah. Um, they sound great. They sound, <laughs> of course. They're, they're, they're great. They're much better than I am, they're much nicer people. <laughs> um, so anyway. Um, and then all of a sudden, I decided to cut things out, cut out the dairy first. It was almost like seeing the world through a through a different eye. It was um, it's like the fog was gone, and I was not irritable anymore. My wife used to say, you know, you come home sometimes and you're just, you know. You're a bear to deal with. <laughs> it was well, a long day. I've had a long day, you know, and I those just, darn patients, I
1: Brian and Molly were there Oh yeah, yeah, know, just
2: you know, yeah, was just, you know my, my hand is falling off. They're just so difficult in the chair. You <laughs> <laughs> uh, was fantastic, by the way. Um, so yeah, it was the fog was gone and my irritability was was gone. It was reduced quite a bit. And then so I that
0: was when you were no dairy but still meat. St-
2: I would I would do still a little bit of meat. Okay. I didn't do chicken. Yeah. <laughs> chicken was you were was done out. with chicken. Done. It was gone. I was like, no way. If I see a chicken, I'm gonna go pet it. I'm not gonna you know. Uh, I'm not going to. I'm not going to eat it. Uh, the other thing about the chicken is that when I was a child in Iran, we used to get those little chicks and we would grow them and you know and just have fun with them and everything else. And then of course we realized that later on they were gone for some reason obviously you know grandma would take him and <laughs> snap his neck and give us some uh, some meat <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know so th- that that kind of played a role to it so the humanitarian thing that we were talking about before um kicked in because of that um or the you know animal rights things i should yeah. say um but then i started to notice that i was still having some issues and uh it was the whether there was a fat in the meat or was the protein, excess protein that was in there, something was just not agreeing with me. So I cut out red meat and all of a sudden another fog was lifted. I was like, you know, I, I feel much better. And, uh, and I was having a lot of issues with my neck. What I was saying with the with the injury that I had, I had a lot of muscle stiffness. I had joint pains. You know, you come in dentistry, you're always hunched over, so you're like mm-hmm. this all the time. Like, yeah, I would just pawn it off as you know, it was a long day. Is that stenosis that you're talking about? Stenosis, yeah, okay. yeah. So yeah
0: Spine inflammation is going to make that
2: worse. Right? Much worse, much worse, and especially in the right side. And that's my working hand. And so, you know, I, I can do only two things. I can do dentistry and draw. So guess what? <laughs> if you have both of those gone, then what are you going to do? I guess you're going to have to use your brain. Um, so anyway, that was it. That, and I noticed that the inflammation was gone. And that was it. That was like, okay, I'm, I don't think I'm going to go back. And um, seven years, I've cheated once. And that was my wife's birthday when we decided, I decided to take her to Europe and uh, the place that, we recommend to go and they only <laughs> serve meat in Paris. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> said, all right, I'm just going to grin and bear and do it. And I did it. And, then, and nothing bad major happened. A little grumble, but then after that, it was fine. It was gone. So, yeah, I, I did cheat. But, you know, special person, special time. <laughs> uh, but ever since then, it's been Inflammation has been gone. I haven't gone back to any sort of heavy weightlifting. I was never able to kind of be the person that would put on a ton of weight because I used to work out with my classmates and, and my team. And I'd see those guys, like, you know, and I would go in and I'd do the same workout as they did, and all of a sudden, like, the summer goes by, I'm like, wait a minute, man, you just put on, like, another 10 pounds of, you know, m- muscle, and I'm still the same lanky mm-hmm. little guy. I'm faster, I'm more agile, but, you know, that's it. And so... Um, I I went back and I started doing a lot of body weight exercises, pull ups, push ups, uh, squats, um, and.
3: Is that kind of your routine now? That's my
2: routine now. Yeah, yeah. And because the doctor, my, my neurologist and neurosurgeon said absolutely no bar on your neck. Yeah. I said, yep, I can't do that. Uh, so I do if I do free weights, it will be below the neck. I won't be not would not be lifting. Kettlebell,
3: more. dumbbell. That Dumb, type of
2: yeah, thing. just basically dumbbells. Yeah, pretty much. That's it. And uh, and a lot of body weight exercises and yoga. Yoga for for uh, uh, agility and for core and everything else. You guys noticed that when you come to my office, I was sitting on that, uh, that yes. medicine ball. Yes. So, you know, I noticed that. Getting like muscles back in the in the core, which was great. So, but yeah, that was that was my journey, and uh, haven't looked back um, thankfully. So, and my skin feels better too, you know.
3: It's amazing that there. I really do think it's an individual thing about yeah. uh, diet, and that's one of the things I've loved having such a wide range of guests come on with a lot of different ways of eating. Yeah. Um, you know, different things really do work for different people for different reasons. Some of it may be, you know, for me, there's an ethical standpoint to it. um, yeah. but there it may be ethical or it may be just the way they feel yeah. eating that way. Um, but everybody's different. so
2: it is, and yeah. I, and, I, and I respect that. i'm not I'm not one of those militant vegans. <laughs> uh, that's an oxymoron. we do we do have
3: a somewhat militant <laughs> vegan in our gym. Wouldn't you say? would Would uh. you say Kim is?
0: No, I don't think. Don't, don't think,
3: think so. Okay. No, she's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah. We love Kim, by the oh, way. That's great. Yeah. I, I, I,
0: I can tell. She's yeah, great. She's yeah. okay. She puts up with us. <laughs>
3: <laughs> she puts up with us. No, if, mm-hmm.
0: if someone's eating a certain way yeah. and they find a way that they feel their best, I think that's great. Yeah. And like Molly said, it's so individualistic. Like... Any kind of a diet trend, if someone's talking about it, it's kind of like, well, try it out. Yeah. Absolutely. It's like you know the scientific method yeah. on yourself, you know. Yeah. Exactly.
2: Test and, and,
1: out the hypothesis and see if it works. That's yeah. it.
2: That's it. Now, there are certain things that I that I eat that, you know, that are uh, plant-based. They, they don't agree with me. Well, they don't go on my diet. I, yeah. I know that, that doesn't really sit very well. Fava beans, I love them, but, you know. They, 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 don't, no they don't sit <laughs> very well. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, you know, it, you know, the biggest thing you know, that I get from people is like, you know, all right, uh, how do you get your protein? Well, plenty of protein in, in plants. Um, and I haven't, you know, lost any weight or anything like that. So that's good. Uh, and muscle is still there. And uh, and when I did it, my blood test, I, I did it actually scientifically. Like I said, I have worked with my physician. We did pre um, blood test and then we did the post blood test and he said you know what certain numbers actually come down your cholesterol levels have come down um, you know your um, you know, uh, LDLs are looking pretty good uh, and they always look pretty good anyway but it's like hey, you're looking better and, and but blood pressure came down I guess something happens in your endothelial cells in your arteries that allows you with with a plant based that you know uh, kind of cleans out the clogged arteries and you don't get that much cholesterol buildup. Those are just a new new uh, thing that just came out. Nitric the, nitric oxide. Is nitric oxide. Yeah.
3: I was gonna say it could be the yoga too. That uh, yeah yeah. You know, zen. That moment of zen. <laughs> breathing. That's bringing it? Your blood, blood pressure down too.
2: Completely, completely. Yeah. It's and you know that I think I think you can do. And there's there's a thing about that. Um, I don't know how much time we have, but um, <laughs> yeah, probably running close to time. Uh, but yeah, people always think that you know you have to be in a lotus position or whatever. I meditate when I'm in line to get coffee at. Uh, you know, Pete's Coffee next to my office, old office. Um, and I stand in line, and people are—some people are complaining. It's like, oh, you forgot this. You know, I want mine this way specifically. And you know, it's always about, you know, me, 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 me. And I'm standing there, and I could get riled up, and I could get into that moment with them. Or I could just be in my own moment. So you can meditate in any position, any place, anywhere. In the middle of the highest and the most busiest place in the world. Uh, you know, we were in London just uh, uh, past couple weeks, and we were in the middle of the, un- the underground, and there was, you know, stuff going on. There was the uh, you know the guy who ran his car into the into the Westminster, and people are running around. Everybody's crazy, and all of a sudden, I'm just taking a breath, and I'm, I'm paying attention to my breath, and that's it. And you can get centered and that butterfly in the stomach goes away because you're like, well, I have a couple of choices. I could um, make a choice to get involved in it and let it affect me or I can... Make a choice to be in my own moment, and make a choice about my attitude, which is what you're talking about yeah. with Viktor Frankl's, uh, which is one of my favorite books. In, I read that in book Search by the way. For yeah, it's I read I book. read that book every my year. top five. Every year, I reread it. Um, it centers me.
1: On the meditation, I've been trying to do like a 10-minute meditation a day, yeah, and I think yeah. it is huge to like. I don't know what it is to to you know because throughout the day it's like oh I got these tasks I'm chasing this I'm chasing this I'm chasing this You're always like chasing something, and that's right. You need that downtime I don't know, reset your brain or whatever it is. I know there's a lot of science about the benefits of meditation. That was what got me doing it is I've just read a lot that has said it's really good for you, so I've been trying to stay regular with it. But same thing where I d I don't it's not comfortable for me to sit in a lotus position, so I'll
2: either just yeah. be sitting in a chair or same even chair, laying yeah. down. As long as I'm not too sleepy, that's the only problem with that's that. That's it, yeah, and then you can you can go. <laughs> You're out. Yeah. But no, the the Harvard study I think was the one yeah. that said that yeah. It it's it just it just rewires your brain and allows you to, you know, um you can actually reconnect uh, and cre- create better neuronal connections with meditation. yeah there's a defined studies that do that. Um, so yeah, it's uh, the benefits are phenomenal, and yeah,
3: and we we aren't meant as humans, we're not meant to live under the load of stress that we live under these days. Exactly. People are stressed, I would say more than ninety to ninety five percent of the time. yeah, and human beings aren't meant to be stressed. i mean, we we are meant to have small moments of extreme stress, but yeah. then it comes back down. And we never bring it back down. And so I think that's where meditation can be.
1: There's a book on that bring called it back uh, down. Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers, that kind of goes into that, about how animals are more in the moment and not always like looking forward and getting stressed about this and that, and anyway.
2: That's, a great, no, that's, that's yeah. great. I'm, yeah. I'm going to add that to my, my cue. Uh, <laughs> piggybacking on, on what you said, um, there's a really, really interesting study that was done on decibels, mm. on the noise levels. Mm. Um, we are, we are designed to, to live in a certain decibel level. And once we go above that decibel level, whether it's by choice or by environment, people that live in New York City are generally a little more stressed. Why? Because what it does, it physiologically kicks you in a fight or flight response. Mm-hmm. So you are in a constant fight or flight response when you are the noise level. Just by we're looking at one parameter, just a noise level decibels. So when your noise level is at a higher level, you're you're constantly like agitated, and so you're snappy. So how can we do to reduce the noise level? Very hard to do. Yeah. People in you know uh, that are in war situations or in, in a hustle and bustle in bigger cities, they they definitely deal with that on a daily basis. So you can never go back to a baseline. That's why meditation comes in quite handy, because you try to bring that blood uh, blood pressure down or your heart rate down to try to improve that. So really interesting stuff on that.
3: They talk about that in BirthFit a lot. There's fight, flight, mm-hmm. shut, shutting shut down, down. That's and it. then connection. Connection or growth. Yeah, And um, we need to be spending more time in connection, connection and, and, growth, and growth, which yeah. requires going back to breath and
2: there's a great book on that, Peter Levine, Taming the Tiger. Mm. He talks about that. He works with PTSD and also with, uh, with definitely, that's, that's 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 the exact. Uh, this actually goes in a cycle. Um, that's what he's talking about. Phenomenal book. Yeah. Well, as we start to wind down, we always like to ask, five to
1: 10-year goals, what are you looking forward to in the future, kind of? Or what are you working toward now? I know some
2: things are changing about your practice. Yes. And <laughs> What's uh, next for you? What's next for me? Well, next for me is in immediate future and starting Tuesday is uh, working two days a week at uh, the new practice that I, that I, uh, uh merged with where my wife works so that's uh, that's going to be kind of cool uh, I get to only work with her one day so we try to keep the sanity going uh, they've been extremely welcoming which is great and, uh, and hopefully we'll continue growing in, in that in that sense over there and then of course we are almost done with getting the contracts and everything done with the Midwestern University and dental school uh, in Downers Grove so I'll be in academia I've always wanted to teach and uh, I used to teach at the University of Iowa for three years after I graduated uh, I had, had the privilege of doing that and so uh, hopefully I'll get back and be able to do two days a week there and then um, on the five-year goals hopefully that this would be the model for the next five years or longer where Mm -hmm. I would be doing private practice and also uh, spending a lot of time teaching and getting getting some of those 20 plus years of experience that I've had in dentistry and teaching the young minds how to do things ethically and doing them well and, and technically well um on the author section, hopefully I'll be able to get the book published, <laughs> and um, and I know I will. Whether it will be self-published or they'll, they'll publish it, it would be great. And going on, on a speaking tour, hopefully, with that book, because I, there are some things in that book that I that I think would really benefit a certain segment of the population, if not most segments of the population in the United States, especially with the youth. And I'll be able to hopefully make a difference there. Um, so that would be the, the big goal in the long term. And then just um, hopefully spend some time with the children. Relax and enjoy life a little bit. enjoy life a little bit, yeah. Yeah. Find some time for meditating. Absolutely, absolutely. Meditate and
1: floss. Yeah, meditate and floss. Two things you should do every day.
2: If you could get that floss through one ear out the other, that would be the best way you can do both at the same time. That's it. That seems like it would feel good. It would feel good. good. Don't try that at home. No, do not. (laughs) 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 Anything else we want
1: to hit before you guys wrap up? Okay. All right. You good? Well... Kaveh, thanks for
2: joining us. This has been great. Thank you so much. It was fun. I appreciate it.
1: All right. This has been another episode of the Thunderbolt Strength Podcast. Until next time, stay strong.